If you have your Bibles with you, and I pray that you do, turn to James chapter 4. We have been talking about this book of James, and we've been looking at the ways that we are to live our faith. And James is throwing so many punches that one of them is bound to hit you in the nose. He has been attacking us on all sorts of different fronts, showing us how we don't always live our faith, showing us how sometimes we say that we believe, but then we do things that are contrary to that. He's talked about uh, the way that we can treat others uh, particularly well who are rich and who might have something to offer us, but yet we treat the poor or the insignificant or those that have nothing to give us as though they're poor and insignificant and have nothing to give us. Um, the sin of partiality and how that, ra rather than an attitude of mercy, is not lining up with the faith that we profess. How we ought to, instead of judging people, should show mercy and compassion on them. How faith without works is dead. Not just, not just floundering, not just wishy-washy, but not any good whatsoever. That we have to have the works demonstrating the faith so that the faith itself is complete. That doesn't mean we work in order to have faith. It means we work out of our faith. Uh, we've talked about the tongue. Oh man, was that a, a, a slobber knocker of, a, of, a, um, of an idea. The fact that we don't always speak good things because there are bad things in our hearts. And what's in the heart is what comes out of the mouth. And so we, we do a great job of controlling our, our tongues. The problem is it, it's in, often in the wrong hands. It's often being controlled out of the wrong motives and out of the wrong kind of heart. And so we have to fix the heart in order to fix the tongue. We talked about uh, this idea that, that these quarrels and these fights among us are caused by the passions at war. And the only way to have victory over those passions if you'll remember, is unconditional surrender to God. We've talked about speaking evil about one another. And we've talked about the fact that sometimes it's not just necessarily putting them down. Sometimes it's just lifting ourselves up. Sometimes it's passive-aggressive comments, but those things make us judges of God and judges of His law and not just a judge of our brother, and how we have no place judging one another, speaking against one another. And now we come to James 4.13. Originally, I was going to do 4.13 through 5.6 together in one sermon, and then I found that there is so much for us to chew on just at the end of chapter 4 that I'm having to break it up. I, you'll often find that in Scripture. When you take a glance, it looks like not that big a deal, but when you look a little closer, you find out that there's a whole lot more there than what you bargained for in the first, first place. So, if my head looks a little deflated this morning, it's because God has been really, uh, really, um, well, he's, he's been taking some air out. Let's just put it that way. James chapter 4, we will begin reading in verse 13, so stand with me as we read God's Word. James 4, 13 through 17. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Pray with me. Father, deflate our heads. Help us not boast. Not this way. But instead, make us humble before you. Use your word in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We've seen plenty of people who are musical prodigies of a sort in our lives. They are expert instrumentalists at tooting their own horn. Y'all know some of those people? Probably the greatest example of that that I can think of is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, now, now he is a character. If you ever watch one of his interviews, you ever see old tape of, of him giving an interview before a fight, man, he is, his head definitely needs to be deflated. He, one time he said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. He's also quoted as saying, my only fault is that I don't realize how great I am. <laughs> now, all of us, we're laughing, but he's serious, by the way. He really means that. In his mind, he really was that great. <laughs> Most of us would point to that and say, oh, yeah, that's definitely sin. <laughs> like, like we recognize, okay, that's, way, that's going a bit too far on yourself. Yeah, you, something's wrong there. We all have a streak of pride in us, though. We may not be so forthright as Muhammad Ali. We may not come out and say it out loud, but we all have that tendency to be proud of ourselves. And, and sometimes we start to notice, well, you know, you're pretty good at something and, and better than most of the other people around you. And it's easy to kind of think, hey, this is my sweet spot. This is something I'm really good at. And before long, you find yourself bragging about how good you are at that. And uh, if you go too much longer, you'll be eating humble pie for dinner. That's typically how it works, right? We brag, we puff ourselves up a little bit too far, and then, and then we get deflated when we come to realize that we may not be so great after all. We all recognize that kind of pride is sinful, but when James is talking about boasting here, he's not just looking at those float like a butterfly and sting like a bee types. In fact, he's looking at a trap. It's a subtle trap. You know, traps, good traps are hidden. Good traps uh, aren't obvious when you come upon them. You know, a good trap is very subtle. And this is a pride trap that is so subtle that we don't even, half the time, we don't even recognize that we're doing it while we do it. So, for a little while, I want you to get out your magnifying glasses, so to speak. Now, if you don't have a sleuth hat or a pipe, that's okay. Those are optional. You can have one. If you got one, yeah, let's use it. You know, we got to look the part. But let's, let's, Let's become gumshoes for a little bit this morning. And let's see if we can't figure out what this pride trap is that James is talking about. Because it's not the big obvious thing. It's something a little more sinister. Look at verse 13. He describes certain people. He says, come now. That is a, um, that's like when, when you go, when guys, when you went to the girl's house and the dad wanted to take you aside and talk to you for a minute. And he'd be like, come over here, son. We need to talk. That's what come now means. Okay? This is like, now, now, you really need to listen to this. 
In fact, there's another point in Scripture where that same phrase is used. It's in, it's in the Old Testament, so it's in Hebrew. It's not the exact same words, but it's the same idea. It's Isaiah 1, 18, where he says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You remember that passage? That's God saying, come over here, son, we need to talk. Let's think this through. James says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, does that surprise you? This is where James starts this conversation. He's pointing to an individual. In this case, it's a merchant. Now, I don't think it's a specific individual. I think that it's indicative of a type of person. But they're making plans for the future. Nothing seems wrong about that. In fact, look at the plans. Today or tomorrow. Well, the specific idea of when. Now, now we don't know exactly for sure. Are they going to go today or tomorrow? I'm not sure. But by, but by two days from now, they're going to be gone. We know that. It's an imminent thing. It's a specific thing. They're, they're making their plans on exactly when they're going to go. But not only that, they're going to a specific city. Reinecker and Rogers wrote a book called The Linguistic Key to the Greek New Testament. In it, they, they identify this language here. It, it says such and such a town in the version I'm reading from. But he says that the word they use is, they say the word they use is an old Greek term. It's an ancient term even for that day to say we're going to this particular place like they're pointing at a map saying this place right here. We're going to this city. So not only is it a specific time frame, it's a specific city. And not only is it a specific city, they're talking about engaging in a particular kind of business. We will go to such and such a town. We will spend a year there specific time frame that this is going to go on. There's, they're talking about a specific business and trade. We're going to trade our goods there with a specific outcome and we're going to make some money. That's a very detailed plan. And the thing about that is none of those things are necessarily wrong. I mean, is it wrong to go to a different place, to a different city? No. To know where you're going? No, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good planning, right? To To have an idea of how long you're going to be there. No. Nehemiah did that. He said, King, I want to go to Jerusalem. King said, how long are you going to be there? Nehemiah doesn't tell us in the book how long he said, but he tells the king a specific time frame. I'm going to be there for so long. And then the king sends him with his blessing. This is what I'm going to do when I'm there. This is something that's not necessarily a bad thing. And is it bad to engage in business? No. Proverbs 14.23 tells us in all toil there is profit. It's not a bad thing to engage in business, to work hard. Now, now if, you're, if you're swindling the poor or you're oppressing people who cannot afford it themselves by charging them exorbitant interest rates, that's not good. If you're gaining your wealth through defrauding other people, that's not good. But if you're earning it by honest, hard work, the Bible commends that. So it's not necessarily wrong to do any of these things. It's not even necessarily wrong to plan any of these things. In fact, Proverbs 21, let's keep, keep in Proverbs while we're there. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Plans are a good thing. 
And these aren't bad plans. These are good plans. So what's wrong? I mean, after all, doesn't God want us to carefully consider our ways? Again, Proverbs 23, 19. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Yes, it's a good thing to do these things. So what's the problem? Has anybody seen a clue yet? Well, maybe, maybe if we look a little bit further. So we've gotten to the crime scene, and we've seen the body. Let's look for some evidence that will help us know who's to blame. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So you're saying all this stuff. You've got these specific plans. We're going to go to this town and we're going to spend a year there and we're going to, we're going to trade and we're going to make money. Those are all specific plans, all good things. And God says through James, but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He says these people that are making all these elaborate plans are missing something. Uh, they, they can't know what tomorrow will bring. They're making plans that might not happen at all because there's some kind of unknown, some kind of unforeseen circumstance that may get in the way. In their detailed analysis, their advanced models of the future, they can't control for every variable. Reminds me of meteorologists. You ever notice they're not always exactly right? They'll say the high will be a certain number. And then during the day, you'll see that the temperature is three or four degrees above that number. And you're thinking, well, that he missed it. Or it doesn't quite get up that high. He'll say there's a 60% chance of rain. You ever notice that they can't tell you exactly where it's going to rain? They can only give you a probability now, now, to be fair, how good are you at, pre at predicting the future? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, I'm not. I mean, it is kind of a hard job to do, okay? To do it right. And sometimes they do get it pretty close. Sometimes they are right. Or they're close enough that we can, we've got some reasonable knowledge of what that day is going to bring. Sometimes, sometimes not. They use computer models and they simulate thousands of scenarios. They, they change all kinds of different inputs into these models to try to figure out what, what, what's going to happen tomorrow. And sometimes they get it pretty good. Sometimes they, they miss it. Sometimes they say 20% chance of rain and the bottom falls out. Sometimes, though, they are pretty close. But professional scientists with advanced technology and modeling cannot predict tomorrow with complete accuracy. There's always some error. There's always something that they can't account for. It's always some unknown that keeps us in the dark when it comes to the future. And that is a clue, Gubb Shoes. Bag it and tag it. Take pictures of it. Note it down. Because that's a clue to what's evil. But it's not just that. There's another clue in this verse too. At the end of the verse, he says that, that you're, what is your life? You are a mist, a smoke, a vapor. It's a favorite. Uh, if you read through Ecclesiastes, that is one of the favorite, um, favorite lines that the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes uh, likes to say. Life is but a vapor. When he says vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. One of the meanings of that word vanity is smoke, vapor. It all vanishes. 
In fact, that's where we get the word vanish and vanity. They have the same root. They are not only unaware of what the future holds, they're not even sure they're going to be there. What is your life? You're here today, gone tomorrow. You're a you're like steam rising up off of a pot. Have you, ever, have you ever watched a pot of boiling water and the steam rising up? It rises up for a little bit and then it's gone. It's like, where, where'd the steam go? You get two or three feet above that pot, you can't see the steam anymore. It's gone. That's what our life is like. So not only do they not know what the future holds, they don't even know if they're going to be there. Your life is so short, James says, you may not even make it to see your plans come about. They don't know the future. They don't know if they'll live to see it. That's another clue. We got two clues now. All right? Maybe, maybe there are some more. Let's go to verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So this is what you say. Now James says, instead, you should be saying this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do whatever. It happens to be. I think that's a major clue. James is pointing to these individuals and he's saying, hey, look, look, you're forgetting that there's a God here. You've, you've left him out of the equation. You're not even thinking about what he wants. You're not even thinking about what he wills. Instead, you are focused on your will, your plan. I think that's a big clue. In fact, uh, that, that, you may as well have the murder weapon at a crime scene. That's that kind of a clue. And there's fingerprints all over it, too. When you're in college, some classes are prerequisites for others. You can't take English 102 until you take English 101, right? You know, because that's a more advanced class, and you need the fundamentals of the basic class before you move on to the advanced class. We all kind of have an idea of that concept, right? That's what God, that's what James is telling them. God's will is a prerequisite for the plans that you're making. If you don't have God's will, it ain't going to happen. If this isn't God's will, you, you hang it up. Forget it. It ain't doing. It ain't, it ain't going to fly. And if it is God's will, well, that's a whole other story. Then you make your plans and then you do what he wants you to do. Oh, my dear Watson, I do believe we are ready just about to solve this case. Now, I know Sherlock's already got it all figured out because he's miles ahead of us. But we're just beginner gumshoes here. So, so we might need just a, one or two more clues. We might need something else just to nail the final nail into the coffin so we know for sure exactly what happened. I wonder if verse 16 might give us that final clue that we need. Verse 16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Ah! Now we have it! I knew it. I knew if we just looked a little bit more, we'd find it. Now, we already found the murder weapon. Now we got the guy sitting in, uh, uh, sitting in the interrogation room confessing. Now we know what's going on here. We can identify the trap. We can close this case once and for all. The trap of pride is arrogance. One commentator noted that uh, the word for arrogance here is plural. It's boasting in your arrogances. It's not just one arrogance, it's many of them. That's how pride happens, right? You know, you, you start to get proud about one thing and then you get proud about other things too. And pretty soon you're all that in a bag of chips. Like it just, it amplifies, right? That's what happens with arrogance. 
The word for arrogance being plural tells us that there are multiple types of arrogance that are going on here and all of them are setting a trap. There is an arrogance of self-deception. They don't see their own weaknesses. They don't realize just how fleeting their lives are or how limited their knowledge really is. They don't want to... They don't want to see that the future is mysterious, that, that they think they can shape it exactly as they want it. They're deceiving themselves. They're blind to their own frailties. They're so confident in themselves and in their plans that they're blind to the mistakes they're making. There's also an arrogance of self-centeredness here. Not only do they not need God, they don't want to need God. There's no seeking his will. There's no looking for his glory, no seeking to bring him praise. They have an arrogance of self-centeredness and that they don't care about God in the least. It's not just that they think they can handle it on their own. They're looking to exclude God completely from the equation. I don't need you and I don't want to need you. So I will do whatever I have to do to exclude you. That's what they're telling God. They're so confident. <laughs> They could repeat the sayings of Muhammad Ali and not even bat an eye. It's also an arrogance of self-dependency in this. They, they, they don't build in the contingencies because they think that they've got it all taken care of. They have all they need. What do they need God's will for? Their plans are modeled to perfection, guaranteed to work. They're so confident, so confident they're so self-dependent. All I need is me. Pride lays its trap through these arrogances that have no basis in fact. In fact, boasting, this boasting is a boasting that is in such a way that you can't possibly live up to what you're claiming. You're only doing it to impress other people. That's the nature of this boasting. And that arrogance, well, it has a byproduct. See, the trap of pride is arrogance and and the byproduct of that arrogance is sin that's where verse 17 comes in we often quote this verse more generally to say you shouldn't do all these sins that you when you know what to do and you don't do it that that's sin we often talk about it in a general term but focus specifically on this idea of arrogant boasting of making your plans apart from the will of god of not including him and not seeking his will first Seems like Jesus said something about seeking the kingdom of God first. Y'all remember something like that? Yeah. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. Which, what those things you need, that food you need, that clothing you need, all, all those basic necessities of life, God's going to take care of all that. But instead, we boast. We make our plans. We act like we've got it all together. We delude ourselves into thinking that we have it made. We boast in arrogance. And then James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do, in other words, to start with God's will, and to not build our plans apart from him, but to build our plans based on his will, and we fail to do it, that's sin. Interestingly, if he just wanted to say that was sin, he could have said that was sin, he says it was sin, that that is sin to him. 
The one who decides, I know the right thing to do. I know how not to boast before God, how not to be arrogant, how not to put myself up on a pedestal and completely forget God. I know that I should put Him center, Him first. He is the one who is on the throne of my heart and I should follow His lead. But I instead are going to sit on the throne myself. That's sin to Him. There's no avoiding it. Pride goes before a fall. That's why James includes the warning. There's a trap here. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. And it's not just sin like messing up, missing the mark. You shoot the arrow and it doesn't hit the bullseye. No, this is sin as in refusing to do the right thing. As in defiantly turning up your nose toward God and saying, no, I don't want to. It's deliberate disobedience. And that sin separates you from God. That's why Paul wrote in Romans that the wages of sin is death. It's what you earn. And had he stopped there, man, that would not be a very good verse. Because that would point at all of us and say, and you too have sinned. And so you too will die. Thankfully, he doesn't end that verse there. He says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a sin of arrogance that seeks to put us in the place of God. And it's not always apparent that that's what we're doing. But ask yourself the question, when's the last time I relied on him when I make my plans? When's the last time that I sought his will instead of doing what I want to do and then just asking him to bless it? When's the last time I let him really lead and me really follow? If the answer isn't right now, (laughs) there's sin. God offers a gift of eternal life that doesn't just cleanse us of all the wrongs so we can go about our way, but that changes us. And it's a change we desperately need. Because otherwise, we're making our plans without him. We're sitting on the throne of our heart and we're dooming ourselves. This morning as we sing a verse of invitation, I'm going to ask you, It's before God to open your heart to him. Let him show you those places where you're being arrogant, where you're making your plans outside of his will, where you are self-centered, self-dependent, self-deceiving. And then I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult. Get off the throne and let him sit there. There's no keeping the seat warm for God. No, this is a trap. And now that you see it, don't fall in. Pray with me. Father, this is, this is your day. Every day is your day. There's something special about a Sunday when we come into your house and we read your word and we see that your word wasn't just for some folks 2,000 years ago in Hellenistic Jewish cultures, that it wasn't just written for somebody that, that used to live a long time ago who faced completely different scenarios and completely different situations and struggles and hardships than what we face. And so, so these words just don't really apply. God, that's not true. Your word does apply. And it not only applies, it applies completely and wholly to us. We face the same struggle of arrogance and pride that masked itself as just good planning, 
that masked itself in just trying to anticipate the future and, and do the things that we need to survive. None of these are bad things, but when you're excluded, it means that we're in charge and that, that's the trap. So Father, help us get off the throne. As one, as one guy uh, says, one seminary president likes to say, let us help us to kill the peacocks and let you be in charge. In this time, open our eyes to ways that we fail you. This one doesn't know you here. God, that's the place they need to start is Calvary because they are under the burden of their sin. And I would ask that you, you in those silent moments, in those, those times of solitude, in those, those situations in which that individual is, is, has no one else to look to, no one else to turn to, no one else to distract them, that, that you would penetrate their heart of stone and would reveal to them your word, that you would lead them to put faith in you, that you would ignite within them the faith that they need to trust you. Father, for those of us who do know you, help us to see where we are being arrogant, where we are trying to take control and help us release those things to you, to seek you first and to trust you. It's your time. You lead. We will follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Miss Patsy plays an invitation hymn, I'm going to ask you just where you are. Just do what God wants you to do. If he's showing you in an area of your life you need to repent, repent. Get off the throne. Let him take control. If you've never trusted Christ, I'll be up here at the front. I'd love to help you do that. If, if you're not a member of this church and you know that, that he's calling you to become a member here, then, then you come. I'll be here. I'd love to talk to you. But whatever it is God's leading you to do, you do what he calls you to do. Thomas Patsy Flights.